Welcome to the Sunday Messages podcast from New Hope Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Our mission is to glorify God by making fully devoted followers of Christ, by belonging together, believing in Christ alone, and blessing our world. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we pray today's message brings you hope and help along the way. There it is, folks. We are still very much in the middle of this series. We're calling it Life in a hurricane. That's nothing new for you folks. If this isn't your first hurricane season, it might be your 10th, or for some of us, it's been your entire life. Hurricane season is a reality in Florida, but life in a hurricane, unfortunately, that is a reality for all of us as well. We've been talking about hurricanes. Last week, we talked about hurricane flags. You remember, even got a little bit of the history of hurricane flags, but let's Let's talk about hurricanes for a second. Help me here a little bit, whether you've been here for one hurricane season or maybe your whole life, surely you know the answer to this one. Where do hurricanes come from? Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, a long time ago, there was a mommy hurricane and a... No, no, that's not it. <laughs> or, or, or maybe you're scientific. You're thinking, well, it's, Pastor, it's, it's all about the low pressure and then the, the hot, moist air when they collide. No, no, it's not that. I mean, where, geographically, where do hurricanes come from? Africa, exactly, or at least off the coast of Africa. You know how it works. Right around now, this time of year, maybe even this week, for example, we all watch those blobs that that start out way over there on the coast of Africa, and slowly they start moving towards us. Nothing could be better news for a forecaster on the evening news. They get all excited about it. With each passing day, they work themselves into a frenzy, and all the while, we're seeing the storm come our way. It begins to form. It begins to spin. It begins to take shape. It begins to pick up speed. It begins to pick up power and energy and destructive power at that. All we can do, excuse me, all we can do is predict. All we can do is prepare. We can't divert it. We can't change its course. We can't diffuse it. There's nothing we can do to stop this storm because it is on its way. At best, we can hunker down and prepare. But now what about the storms that start out a little bit closer to home? Maybe even in our own backyard. Now, I'm not talking about the Caribbean basin. I mean literally our own backyard. The storms that that start out in our own house. The storms that start out in our own family. The storms that start out in our own hearts. I'm talking about the, the homemade hurricanes. The storms of our own making. What about those storms? I mean, I mean, look at some of the destructive pictures and images that are seared into our brain. See, some of the pictures that are seared into our brain. There you go. Of, of hurricanes in, in years past. You, you've seen these pictures on the news. Maybe you've lived through some, If you were here just even a few years ago, you lived some of these pictures. The destruction that happened, these were storms that we had no way of preventing, no way of turning around, no way of diffusing. These storms were coming. At best, at best we could predict the day they were going to hit. At best we could prepare. And still all of this destruction took place. What about a storm of our own making? I bet if you interviewed any of these folks in any of these pictures, I promise you they would have chosen prevention over preparation. They would have chosen diffusing or diverting over over, over just detecting the storm and knowing when it's coming. They would have said, if there was any way I could have stopped it, I would have stopped it. You can't do that with a storm coming over from the coast of Africa, but you can, through the power of God, do that through a storm of your own making. 
We're continuing in our study of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived preaching. I believe the greatest sermon ever preached. And as we walk through this, we're picking up all kinds of ideas that we can use, not only 2,000 years ago when Jesus first preached it, but even in our day today. And today, he's going to help us understand how we can diffuse, how can we destroy, how can we prevent the storms of our own making. So go ahead and open up to the book, the Gospel of Matthew. We're in Matthew again, chapter 5 again. We're starting in verse 21 today, understanding what these storms look like, these storms of our own making. Storms of our own making, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Before we dig in, we need to understand something about these words we're about to read. Probably all of us have, if not read the story, we've had a Bible study on it, we've uh, sat through a sermon or 20 on this same passage. We need to understand the impact of these words. When Jesus first preached this sermon, when Jesus first preached this particular passage of the sermon, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. This literally rocked the religious world in his day. It is still rocking the religious world of our day because here's the deal. We, we believers, we followers of God, we have kind of divided the world into two. There is the, the good side and there is the bad side. We as believers, we are, of course, on the good side. And there's this dividing line that divides us from the bad people. On the evil side, on the bad side, there's even levels of badness. And all the way in the back corner are the worst of the worst you ask somebody on the street, hey, are you a, are you a good person? They would say something like, well, I, I think so. I, I, I guess so. I, it's not like I ever killed anyone. That is a red flag to know that that is the worst of the worst. And they're back in the corner. And we have kind of drawn this line around those folks that are in back corner. The worst of the worst. There's this line around them. And this line was driven, drawn hundreds, even thousands of years ago. We live with that same line today. And Jesus walks into that story and he redraws that line. He goes back to the back corner of the bad section and he starts drawing the line even bigger than we could ever imagine. It crosses is a line between good and evil, and he draws it all the way around us good folks, all the way around the people that would say, I'm good people, all the way around the people that said, I never killed anybody, I never committed adultery, I maybe thought about it once, and he draws that line all the way around us, and we include us in that. It rocked the world then, and it's rocking the world today. Let's understand better what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 21. He says this. Jesus says, you have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Let's just stop right there for this first idea. This first storm is, I believe, the storm of self-governance. Who's in charge? Who decides what I do, what I believe, where I go, what I will be a part of, what I won't be a part of. Is it God and his word or is it me? Three times just in the passage that we're going to read today, Jesus uses this, this teaching tool. You have heard it said, but I say this. It was popular in those days. In fact, very popular with Jesus himself because he goes on and uses the same teaching tool many other times in the New Testament. What is he saying? Is this audacity that he's redefining scripture or or is it true authority that only God himself could speak truth over truth? What is he 
what is he saying? Well, first of all, what he's not saying, he is not saying, you have heard it said, that the, the Old Testament law or the law that you have, or the traditions that you have followed have said this and this and this, but here I come and I'm going to modernize, I'm going to fix, I'm going to bring us up to date. Here is a new teaching. That is not at all what Jesus is saying. What is he saying? He's saying this. He says, your religion... Your tradition, the tradition of man and woman, what you have created, is only capable of focusing what is on the outside, what is seen. Not until that sin pops out into the public eye, to the surface, can it, will it be addressed. The longer you can hide that sin, the longer no one knows about it, the better off you will be. But I tell you, Jesus says, I love you, and I want to help you. I want, to, I want to eradicate, I want to pluck out, I want to nip that in the bud, I want to get it before it turns into something bigger, before it festers, before it becomes a cancer in, a, in your body, before it takes root, like bitterness, I want to pluck that out. Ask any, any gardener with their salt, they know the importance of pulling weeds, because if you don't, Yes, of course, it gathers all around. Anyone that lives in Florida longer than two years and you've begun your regular regimen of every 12 months going to the dermatologist, you know why. If they don't chunk off those little tiny pieces of skin and flesh, it will turn into something much worse. This is a biblical principle. Jesus says, I love you too much to leave it the way it is. I want to get to the root, what's causing the problem, and not wait until it pops out for everyone to see. This is possibly one of the most powerful teachings of Jesus in the entire Bible. He is he's unpacking, he's not redefining, he is rather interpreting and defining, bringing down to a point with godly authority what God's word has always says. I love it when Jesus does this kind of thing. This is all Jesus. But here's the deal. You ain't Jesus. Jesus can get away with this. Jesus can do this. This, in fact, is Jesus' greatest, most powerful teaching, I believe, as he hones down, brings down, focuses God's word into the very details of our lives. Why? Because he loves us too much to let us fester and cancer up and, and, and wither away because of something that we've allowed to grow up inside of us. He wants to get it before it can turn to that and harm us and harm our families, harm our, our church family, harm, harm our world. That's how much he loves us. But you and I, we ain't Jesus. We don't get to redefine scripture. We don't get to reinterpret to match our world. You have heard it said that guy and gal shouldn't move in together because sex outside of marriage is a sin. But I tell you, well, with the divorce rates today, I, I really need to know what I'm getting into. So it, it makes perfect sense to me and all of my friends. Well, the, the three guys I talk to, they all think the same thing. We really need to do this just, just to be sure. You ain't Jesus. You have heard it said, bring your, your first fruits into the storehouse, your tithes, your offerings, your gifts to the Lord. But I tell you, you know, Father, I'm... I'm working on a mortgage. If we can pay it down, I think we can get it all settled. I want to put some money in the kids' college fund. When I'm retired, i got more time, more money, and more, more margin in my resources. Then I'll, I'll begin to, to send a little bit your way. Can you hang on till then, God? We are not Jesus. We don't get to redefine, hone down, uh, re-examine Scripture. This is his job. We are not self-governed. We need to make, uh, making up our own rules. We are following his rules. Don't miss this. Don't misunderstand what Jesus is doing. He is not reimagining. He is not bringing up to the cultural norm. 
He is using a laser focus to target on our true need. What does that mean? What is Jesus trying to tell us to do? He is, he is making sure that we allow God's word to speak to us. What's the answer? How do we, how do we calm a storm of self-governance? We need to allow God's word. God's written word, God's, God's spoken word. We need to allow God's word to speak for itself. The time and the energy that we would spend in, in looking for loopholes, <laughs> the time and the energy that we would spend looking for detours or, or, or bypasses or, or ways around the, the tightness of God's word, the, way, the time, the energy that we would spend fighting God's word in our lives, rather invest that time in praying for wisdom, Invest that energy in, in praying for a contrite spirit, a spirit of obedience, and a willingness to follow, even at the cost of our time, our energy, our resources, our own will. And as we do that, you will see the winds of that storm calm, and we'll walk out, and that storm has been averted. It has been diffused. It is no more. But there's another storm. The storm of anger. Look at verse 21 and 22 again. We want to read it in a different way. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, Jesus said, that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So, there is the storm of self-governance. There is also the storm of anger. What is Jesus saying here? That word raka, that's a good word. <laughs> raka means, uh, well, it means you fool, but in a sense of, of you are detestable. Uh, there is complete contempt. Uh, I'm dismissing you as, as even being not only not equal to me, but not even a human like I am. Uh, it's, it's, it's also saying you are dead to me, but not only, not only all the meaning that is tied up into that one Aramaic word, it was how it was spoken. It, it, it was one of these words that, that the way it sounded was also its meaning. So you wouldn't just say, oh, Raka. You would say, Raka, idiot, fool. Kind of like when we're driving on the streets here during winter season. The same tone in our voice that we use on those days is what God's talking about here. Writing someone off and writing off any possibility of human contact or relationship with that person. No, you have not killed them. But you have begun a journey down that road. And some of us have traveled on that road of Raqqa further than we should. Further than we like. And the next step is even closer than the last step. And the end is closer than we ever imagined in our wildest nightmares. And God is calling us back from the brink. So what is anger and how does it create a storm in our lives? Well, we need to understand a little bit about anger. Don't worry, I'm not going all pop psychology on you. But, but let me just explain a little bit about anger. Anger is very closely related to love, believe it or not. No, not in the sense that it is the opposite of love, but rather it is an extension of love. Let me explain. If you love something, someone deeply, you are jealous for them. In fact, the Bible even talks about that. God is jealous for his people. God is jealous for us. We are, we are angry. If, if anyone would harm that which or the people that we love, then anger wells up in it. It is, it is the extension of that. I, I love them a lot, so I anger for them a lot. So it is very much 
dis- uh, connected. The problem is when our, when our, when our anger is out of sorts. We, we are supposed to love in the right, in the right order. I am angry when someone disrespects me. That must mean that I, that I really love myself or I love respect of others. God is angry at sin. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me so much. Anything that would hurt us, it makes him angry. Jesus, remember Jesus in the Bible, he got angry. He got angry at the temple, the money changers, because they were turning his house. He loved God's house. It should be a house of prayer. So his anger was worked out not on them but on the sin. Augustine, he was a theologian, a philosopher, a Christian philosopher living hundreds and hundreds of years ago. He said this. That, that we all love things, we all love people, that's how it should be, that's how we're created. The problem comes in when we have the things that we love out of order. He called it disordered, kind of old-fashioned uh, language. He said when, when, it, when our loves are disordered, we're supposed to love God and family and, and, and others and all these things. As long as they're in order, everything is hunky-dory. When we have disordered them and we love something from place number five as much as we do something on place number one, then, then all things kind of go haywire. If, uh, for example, you, uh, you've been going for a promotion at work and you've put in all kinds of extra hours, you've, you've done everything right, you've, you've written up all kinds of great reports, you really expect to get this promotion and then you don't get it. It goes to Bob, and Bob's been sitting on his thumbs for weeks now, not doing anything. He's the last guy that deserves it, but he got it. You didn't. So if your love is out of order, rather than saying, that's a bummer, I'm grieving that, I'm going to work harder or maybe find another job where I'm appreciated, you just quit. Or even worse, you consider suicide. Why? Because your love is out of order. You love acknowledgement, you love success, you love uh, the renown or the fame that you get from being the boss, you love the more money. Whatever was tied up in that in your brain has become out of order, disordered, he says. So, so the problem is it is the same with our anger. We, we rage against things. For instance, if we are snubbed or, or slighted publicly because of, of something we did or didn't do, we, we go into a rage over that, this small thing, when all the while things it should send us into a rage of anger for the injustices uh, caused by people in other parts of the world or or to the unborn. It's just a blip on the radar to us because it is disordered in our life. So what do we do? What is God telling us to do about our anger? There are at least three different options. One option is just don't get angry. No anger. Well, the problem with this is that's not that's not human. You, you are a passionate person. Some are more passionate than others, granted. Some, some show their emotions differently or more than others. But we are meant to show emotion. To have no anger is to have uh, no emotions. It's to be apathetic, to, to be emotionally uninvolved, to be emotionally uh, detached from our world, from our family from our church world, from, from all that God's created. So that is not the answer. The other extreme would be to, to explode with anger. And of course, that is not the answer because that is more rage and it's like a slash and burn destroying everything around us. But rather, the biblical principle is the idea of slow to anger. The Bible even talks about this, that we are not to stop being angry or we are to be explosively angry. The Bible says, at the right times, you are to be slow to anger. Slow means methodical, prayerful, 
both eyes open, both ears open, fully aware of what the target is of your anger and what the goal is of your anger. This is much more a surgical strike, a surgeon's scalpel, cutting out that which is bad in your life, in the life of someone you love, in the family member that you love, taking that out, not slash and burn in all the relationships as far as you can reach, but only that. God is calling us to be very specific in what he's calling us to do, and the only way we can do that is if we are slow to anger. Thirdly, there's another storm that we kind of homemade ourselves. It's a storm of relational apathy. Look at verses 23, 4, 5, and 6. Therefore, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled. It's a great word. Come back to it. Be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid every last penny. So what is God saying about this storm, this storm of, of relational apathy? God is saying this is, first of all, this, some, sometimes we read this particular passage, we're thinking it has to do with maybe communion or, or a worship service is much less about right religion and right, right liturgy. It's much more about right relationship. God is talking to us about reconciling. What does that word reconcile mean? This is huge. We've talked about it over and over again. It comes up over and over again in the New Testament, specifically from God. You remember what we said God's mission is in the world, his missio dei, that Latin theological term for the mission of God? He is reconciling a lost world back to himself. Now he is calling us, his children, brothers and sisters, to be reconciled to each other. What does it mean? Reconcile literally means to exchange war or conflict for friendship. I'll say that one more time. If we are reconciling with a brother, reconciling with a sister, we are, we are exchanging the conflict that we are having for friendship. Now, that's not the conflict we are having for, uh, can't we just get along? Or the conflict we are having with, can't we just agree to disagree? Or the conflict we are having with, well, let's at least live peaceably with each other and not get into it every time we see each other. That is not the picture here. He's saying we are exchanging conflict, war, with friendship, hugs. This is huge. This doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen by, with, uh, with, with leaving enough time. This is an act of our will. Relational apathy is a sickness that is creeping into the church. Conflict is hard. Conflict is scary. Conflict takes a lot of work. This is a calling to loving confrontation. Inside the church, we're not talking about your neighbor, that crazy neighbor that yells curse words across the fence. I'm talking about your brother and your sister in your godly family. God is calling us to live in loving confrontation. What does that look like? Well, well God gives us four, four steps right here in the passage. Number one, he says, if, if you're coming to a, a worship service to, to bring a gift to the Lord, you're, it, it, might be, it might be communion, it might be a worship service, you might be bringing your little tithe check, what, whatever it is. If you're coming to bring that to the Lord, leave it on the altar and go back and talk to your sister, your brother, 
and work this out, reconcile with him. That's how important it is to God. What could be more important than, than offering a gift to the God that gave you everything? Pastor Chuck said it so beautifully. God's given us everything. He only asks that we return a small portion. You're coming to do what God told you to do. And he says, stop. As important as that is, as, as biblical as that is, as often as I've told you to do that, stop. The other is more important. And he sends us back. To talk to our brother, talk to our sister. Then he says, whatever you do, do it quickly, the Bible says. Don't put this off. Don't wait. Uh, they might move away or they're going through something. They'll get better. Uh, we'll get a few more folks here in church. and I'll, I'll make some new friends and I'll, I'll, just, I'll just avoid that side of the sanctuary or, or, or that, that family or, or that, 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 that other loved one. Whatever it is, God says, do it before it festers, before it becomes a cancer. Before it becomes a barrier, not only in your relationship, but even in your own faith. And then he talks about going to your brother, going to your sister. Going to your brother, going to your sister. Two times in a row he says that. And then he makes a switch. For the last two times, he's no longer called brother or sister. In this little short passage, just three or four verses, that's how fast it switches. It switches to adversary adversary, that he or she who is on the other side of the law from you, who is on the other side of justice from you. That's how fast it happens. Not only go quickly, but go to your brother, those closest to you. And then he says at the very end, before this goes to the judge, why is he saying that? These things tend to only escalate with time. They don't, they don't go away. We don't forget about it. We don't let it, let it cross under the bridge. These things escalate with time before it goes to the judge and goes to the court and goes to others. The Bible says you may even be pr- thrown in prison. These interpersonal relationships without the, the confrontation, the loving confrontation that is called for, you will be in emotional prison, the Bible says. You won't be free to worship. You won't be free to to chat with anyone because you always got to watch out for that one. You won't be free to to worship and celebrate with those in in, in your own family, much less God's family, because you have been imprisoned by this broken relationship. Now, folks, we just talked a lot about conflict and confrontation. And I'm sure, because I know in my own heart, we've all been thinking of at least one person. No, not, not the same person, but you've got your one person, I've got mine. Right, right, right? That you, you, you've had some conflict with. You're, you're, you're living still in conflict, and it's not yet friendship, as the Bible teaches here. This isn't here to shame you or to guilt you into action, that you would go running out of here and give him, give her a call, or go up and hug him until you, until you hug it out. That is not the purpose. But if God is calling you to do that, that is most certainly what God is calling you to do. Here's the danger. God has called you to do that, and you have done 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 that. The Bible says, as long as it is on you, do that. But sometimes, they are not ready to receive it, or just plain not willing to receive it. Who knows that? The enemy. And he will come over and over and over again. He'll poke you and he'll prod you, and he'll pull you down, and he'll tear you down. Look, you call yourself a Christian, you can't even get along with old Frank. You call yourself a teacher, and you can't even get along with old Sarah. You call yourself a church leader, and you can't even talk to old Susie. God is not a God of shame. God is not a God of guilt. God does not tear us down ever. Those feelings are not from the Lord. 
Those feelings are from the enemy. God only builds us up. God only pushes us forward. If God is calling you to reach out again, then by all means, scripturally speaking, do that. But you should not hear guilt and shame if you have done all that God's told you to do and they are not ready to receive it. And then finally, there's one more storm. The, the eye of the storm, we call it. The eye of the storm. Look at verse 27. You ready for this one? <laughs> 27 says this. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully or a man lustfully has already committed adultery with her, with him in his own heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Easy. Throw it away. Simple. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Easy. Throw it away. Simple. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, we've saved the best for last. <laughs> you have heard it said, the Bible says, Jesus said, but I tell you, Jesus is not saying here that, that lust is the same as adultery, that anger is the same as murder. They are not equal. What he is saying is they are both sin. They are both wrong. Neither one belongs in the life of the believer. Neither one. Neither one is better, a little bit better, a little less bad. He's saying neither one. Jesus is saying that when we lust after a woman, when we lust after a man, that we are lusting after something that was not meant for us to have. That our eyes are taking in information that are, that are focused on something, desiring to have that thing which we are not meant to have. God's created us, our, our human bodies, our, our, every piece of our human body is a miracle, the creation of God. One of the greatest miracles is our imagination. There's no way to describe it scientifically. It is off the charts, unbelievable. The greatest, uh, biggest mega computer of all time with a 4K, 4D, uh, super high resolution. It's got nothing on our imagination. It is incredible. All the pictures, all the ideas, all the creativity that it can produce. But here's the deal. Our imagination in and of itself is nothing evil. All our imagination does is amplify that which we feed it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. If we are feeding our imaginations good, then it is incredible the creativity, the productivity, the, the vision, uh, the invention that comes from the imagination that God has placed in our brains and our spirits. But if we feed it bad stuff, it is only going to amplify that and amplify that which doesn't belong. So what is Jesus saying that we should do about our eyes? Well, it's pretty clear as far as I'm concerned. We're kind of old school here at New Hope. We're kind of Bible uh, believers, we, we think every word in the Bible is true, so it's pretty clear what God's saying about our eyes and about our hands, right? Is God saying, pluck out your eyeballs? Is God saying, cut off your hands? Well, folks, here's the deal. This is a slippery slope. Any preacher worth his salt would, would say, keep your hands off this one. This one's going to be tough. Because if we start saying, well, now this one is to be taken literally, but this passage by no means... Well, who decides? And on what day? How do we know what God is saying? I argue that this is, in fact, not 
not to be taken literally. Because we are, uh, he's, saying, because he's saying that there are some things that belong and some things that don't. We are, we are to conform to the likeness of Christ. As we conform daily to the likeness of Christ, that involves obedience. That obedience involves sacrifice. That sacrifice means saying no to things that do not belong in our life. That is a cost, a cost of discipleship. We can't say yes to everything and think everything is okay. Saying no to things that no longer belong. Wiping them clean, wiping the slate clean. Last night, I just, um, I just sold my old laptop. I don't know if, if any of you have, have had a laptop for years and years. I happen to use a brand of laptop that lasts seven, eight, nine years. Not all brands last that long. Mine happens too. I won't name it because we're on the internet and they'll be flagged as advertising. But, but this, this laptop, it, it, it helped me write hundreds of sermons. It uh, helped me write thousands and thousands of emails. Even helped me write a doctoral thesis to get my, my doctor. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with this little machine, but now it's time to start using a new one, not... not I knew when someone gave me their old one, but it was newer than my old one. So the seven-year-old computer had to go. So what do you do? You take out all your old data, right? Anything that I had put in, I wanted to remove. The young college kid that's now using it, he doesn't care about my emails. He doesn't care about my family photos. He doesn't care about my, my doctoral thesis. He, he said, why don't you go ahead and, and, and erase all of your data? But there's another problem. These computers nowadays, it's not just about, they're not just data holders, these computers are so smart, they, they literally bend towards their user. My laptop in seven years had bent towards David. I would, I would start a sentence in, in whatever language I was starting in, and it would finish that word. It would finish my sentence. I would search a, a web page that I had looked at before, and it would finish the address. I would, I would add, sit, look for an address. It would finish that address. It had become so accustomed to me, its user... In my world, it lived in the world of David for seven years. It had done everything it knew how to do to please the user that it was now bent towards me. It had to be wiped clean. There was no way this, this young college kid, he was just starting out in school, there's no way that computer could bend towards him unless I wiped away its bend. This is a problem with you and me. Now, that laptop only spent seven years with me. Some of you have, been, have, have spent 70 years in your world, and you are now bent towards your culture, your society, your world. God's saying, we've got to wipe that clean. God's saying, there's no way that you can stop looking at what you've always looked at. Stop saying what you've always said. Stop using the attitudes that you've always used. Stop being a part of the things that you've always been a part of unless God wipes us clean. Our hard drive has ruts developed that lean towards, lead towards things that no longer belong. Activities, words, attitudes, how we speak to others, forms of entertainment, and God wants to get rid of that. So again, I ask you, what is the answer? Do we pluck out eyeballs? Do we chop off hands? Is that what God is teaching us. Well, again, we need to be very careful. This slippery slope leads only to a bunch of blind, handless believers, and that is clearly not God's teaching here, and here's why. We had just spent the last, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes talking about how God is not giving us this law because he is interested only on the externals. God is not giving us this very honed down, detailed down interpretation of God's law just so that we can continue focusing on the symptoms 
instead of on the root cause. He's talked about not just waiting until that sin pops out into the public eye before we chop it off, but God, Jesus wants to go all the way down to the root of that and pluck it out before it can become a cancer that spreads through our whole body. So if we are saying, okay, just pluck out an eyeball, just chop off a hand, then we're right back where we started from, and we've just denied everything we've just said about those first three storms. That can't be it. So what is God saying? God is saying that we are to go as deeply as possible, understanding that he is always interested in our heart. It is not our eyes that should be plucked out or our hands that should be cut off. It is the things that we do that, 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 we, that we do and do not belong in our lives. Things that fill our imaginations and lead us towards things like murder, towards things like adultery, towards things that no longer belong in our lives. Those are the things are to be, that are to be radically plucked out and chopped off from our lives because it will continue to form ruts in our hearts and our spirits and continue to lead us in the direction of the things that God doesn't want us to be about. Folks, these storms are homemade. These are storms of our own making. We have walked into this, and God is giving us in his word. Jesus, the greatest preacher of all times, he is preaching his heart out that we would understand that he is not about the outer, the outside things and the, the expressions of these things or the symptoms of these problems. He's going for your heart and my heart, for your spirit and my spirit. Jesus wants to know us in that most intimate way. And when we allow him in, in the midst of a storm, even a storm of our own making, when we allow Jesus in and he begins doing his, his, his holy surgery on our hearts and our spirits and chopping off the things on the inside that don't belong there. They'll never pop out on the outside. And the storms and the winds and the destruction that we see from other places and other families in other lives will not touch our life and our family and our homes. Folks, please hear this prayer from Jesus. Hear this powerful teaching from Jesus. Let him in all the way in and allow him to stop those storms before they even begin. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the storm stiller. You still the storm in our hearts, in our lives, in our families. You can stop the winds. You can stop the waves. You did it in front of the disciples. It's in your word. We read those stories. We know that same power that can stop a, a physical storm can stop an emotional and spiritual storm in our hearts as well. So God, that is what we're praying for, that you would help us to stop these storms, these homemade hurricanes, before they even begin, allowing us to continue to live in peace and be, because you live inside of us, a place of refuge for our friends and our family members that don't yet know you. Oh, Jesus, we thank you so much for the opportunity to understand from your word what it looks like to live a life of peace and a life in union with you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. You can find more free resources, learn about our church, and partner with us financially when you visit us online at newhopecapecoral.com. Also, if you have a question or a story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on the contact page, once again, at newhopecapecoral.com. 
Finally, if this message was a blessing to you, would you take a moment to share that blessing with others? You can do that by subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and by leaving a review to share your story with others. Thanks again for tuning in and for helping us share the hope of Jesus with the world he loves. We'll see you next time.